This is Our American Stories, and on this day in history, Phineas Taylor Barnum died in 1891. He was to show business when Andrew Jackson had been to politics. And like Andrew Jackson, he became one of the representative Americans of his time, an expansive entrepreneur in the age of entrepreneurs. In a big and memorable way, he changed how all Americans lived. He gave us something to talk and dream about. Our movies, television, our whole entertainment culture is what it is today because of what he started. He seems almost a fable now. But then he did in his own day, too. Tonight, we welcome America's fabulous showman, Phineas Taylor Barnum. When you think of P.T. Barnum, you think of the circus. But he didn't invent the circus. He reinvented it and turned it into the greatest show on earth. Whatever Barnum did, he did big. Most of all, he was the ultimate American salesman. In fact, Barnum is known today as the Shakespeare of advertising. At a time when the railroads and the Industrial Revolution were sweeping America into the 20th century, Barnum sold dreams. Phineas Taylor Barnum was born in Bethel, Connecticut on the 5th of July, 1810. He was the eldest of five. Influenced by the Protestant work ethic, the young man would attend school just long enough to master basic reading, writing, and arithmetic skills. After that, it was off to work in his father's dry goods store when he was just eight. Ironically, the Barnum family's orthodox Protestantism is what sparked P.T.'s flair for showmanship. The church would often run lotteries and play good-natured practical jokes on each other. And one of Bethel's most savvy practical jokers was Barnum's grandfather, Phineas Taylor, for whom he was named. The grandfather was among the town's wealthiest citizens, and he used this fact to make P.T. the victim of one of his longest-running gags. At the boy's christening, he deeded him a piece of land called Ivy Island. I give you Ivy Island as a gift, Phineas. It'll make you the richest boy in town. For years, P.T. heard stories about what a rich, lucky young man he was. How much more? Oh, just right up ahead, Phineas, right up ahead. Finally, at the age of 10, he set out with his grandfather to see Ivy Island for himself. Feast your eyes, lad. Ivy Island. Ivy Island kind <laughs> of... Uh, makes people think of some beautifully manicured estate or something, uh, when in reality, Ivy Island was named for Poison Ivy. Ivy Island taught him a valuable lesson, that people love to be humbugged. Then, in 1826, P.T.'s father fell ill with a fever and died. The 15-year-old boy became the family's sole source of support. Things looked even darker when everything the family owned, including the shoes young Barnum wore to the funeral, were sold to pay their father's debts. His father's store changed hands, and he went to work for the new owner, his uncle, Deacon Cox. One day while his uncle was out, a high-pressure salesman talked Barnum into buying 550 useless glass bottles. When his uncle returned... 550 green bottles! Sir, if I can sell these bottles in a month, may I keep my job? Barnum came up with a plan. Mr. Cox! He would hold a lottery. 
he posted a sign that read, Magnificent Lottery, over 550 prizes, only 1,000 tickets. First prize was worth $25 of goods from the grocery store, and second prize won $10 worth of goods. It seemed as if the whole town were present for the drawing. The first and second place winners were announced. The third prize winner is Obadiah Johnson. And what do I win? Mr. Johnson, you have won this magnificent green bottle. Why? Well, everybody knows you got rooked on them bottles, boy. <laughs> Fourth prize winner is Mrs. Hannah Esmond. Mrs. Esmond, why, you have won a prize that will become a family heirloom. This magnificent green bottle. <laughs> wow! I never, I never! Fifth prize winner is Mr. John Custer. Mr. Custer, you have won a prize that all who enter your home will admire. This magnificent green bottle. Sixth prize winner is Mr. and Mrs. Will Sawyer. You have won this magnificent green bottle. <laughs> People, Barnum learned that day, like to win, no matter how small the prize. Boy, it's the best joke of the year, and you've done it. <laughs> Barnum had learned another important lesson. Charging people for a good laugh and a story to tell isn't taking advantage of anyone. Mr. Barnum wishes to proceed with the agreement reached between he and Miss Charity Hallett. Around this time, Barnum met Charity Hallett, a devout Congregationalist whom he would marry in 1829 at the age of 19. With his new bride beside him, Barnum set out to forge a name for himself in business. And like his father, he juggled several jobs. He bought his own store in Bethel. He ran a lottery. He started a newspaper. And much to Charity's dismay, he adopted a new religion, Universalism. Universalists oppose Jesus Christ's claims of being the sole source for one's salvation. They believe all people, universally, go to heaven. In 1831, Barnum used his newspaper to attack a minister in nearby Danbury, Connecticut. This offense earned him 60 days in jail, a sentence he proudly served. Reports had it that it was wallpapered and uh, not that uncomfortable, and he could continue to publish his paper right from the cell. Which Barnum did, painting himself as a little guy, persecuted by a corrupt religious elite. This won him public support, got him out of jail, and made him a political force to be reckoned with. It also taught him yet another valuable lesson. There's no such thing as bad publicity, although Charity didn't share the same enthusiasm. She became more conservative all the time, and he became uh, more audacious in the sorts of things he was doing. She was always pleading with him, please don't get involved with this. Just get yourself a normal business life and be a normal Bethel husband. For the next few years, Barnum tried to be a normal Bethel husband. He tended to his store, his lottery, his newspaper, and his wife. But Barnum was a showman at heart, and when he looked into the future, all he could see was untapped potential. Amusement's what they want. And when we come back, more on the life of P.T. Barnum, who died on this day in history in 1891. And as always, our This Days in History are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. More after these messages. 
This is Our American Stories. We continue our This Day in History for the hour. The story of Phineas Taylor Barnum. We continue. In 1833, Charity gave birth to the first of four daughters. It's a girl. But the roller coaster which was P.T. Barnum's life took another sudden turn. The next year, Connecticut outlawed lotteries. A few weeks later, his store went bust. Then, in that same month, came the final blow. His newspaper couldn't compete with the Danbury Recorder, and so it folded. And so in 1834, with nothing left to lose, Barnum moved his family to New York City to seek fame and fortune. In 1835, again against Charity's wishes, Barnum used almost every penny they had to buy the contract for Joyce Heth, a slave who looked not just old, but positively ancient. Weighing only 46 pounds, she was toothless, blind, and almost completely paralyzed. Incredibly, Heth was being exhibited as the 161-year-old former nurse to George Washington. And as preposterous as the hoax was, Barnum was right. People loved to be humbugged. But under Joyce Heth's second-rate promoter, the audience failed to connect with her tall tales. But Barnum saw a gold mine. He asked to meet the woman who, as she often declared, had personally nursed the father of all founding fathers. And who might you be? Your new owner. Oh, no. Not owner. Slavery is surely against God's plan. I have purchased you. That much is true. But I now manumit you. I'll instruct lawyers to prepare the papers of emancipation. Well, what's going to become of me? Well, I shall employ you for cash to do this. You have always done. Don't you care how old I really am? I already know. You're 161. I'd rather not discuss it further. Barnum was a crackerjack salesman. He understood that he would have to repackage his new talent. But first, he needed to sell his idea to his pious wife, Charity. I'm not deceiving anyone. People believe what they want to. Deep down, they know the truth. But if, for just one moment, they can imagine something that could not be, but believe it all the same, then who's the poorer? We will be, if you're wrong. Barnum knew that fishing for an audience was one thing. But keeping them coming through the doors was another. Barnum thought that if he wrapped his rusty old hook in the American flag, people would swallow it whole. The curtains opened, and there sat the pipe-smoking caretaker of America's greatest founding father. Barnum would invite clergy, because he knew that they would respond on cue to Heth's performance, further validating her while in turn, increasing attendance. Uh, angel. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! Heth earned Barnum a sizable profit before her death a year later. And now, ladies and gentlemen... Barnum next managed a juggler named Vavala and toured him up and down the East Coast. During his travels, he met another juggler named Roberts, who claimed he could out-juggle Vavala. So Barnum secretly managed Roberts and Vavala, and staged what seemed like spontaneous challenge matches between the two so-called rivals. The audience would lay bets, 
Barnum would collect a fee from both jugglers, plus a percentage of the gate. Everybody won. This gimmick was an original stroke of marketing genius. Today, competing products are often put out by the same company. In 1841, Barnum took his biggest gamble yet. While most of the country's stuffy museums were going bankrupt, he decided to buy the American Museum in Manhattan. With hardly any money in the bank, Barnum had an audacious plan. He arranged to have lunch with a bank executive. Of course, I'd need collateral. I have only some land left me by my grandfather. Really? Tell me more. Well, actually, I, I just assume not risk that. Oh, do tell. Simpson? Well, why? It's called Ivy Island. It's uh, several acres near the mouth of the Raritan River in southern Stamford. An island? Connecticut? Hmm. Interesting. Ready? And so, at the age of 31, Barnum embarked on yet another new career. Museum owner. The American Museum had been a stale center of learning. Not so under P.T. Barnum. Fun came first. Barnum charged his patrons a 25 cent admission fee. His museum was more like what we now know as a circus sideshow. There were exotic and deformed animals, plus giants, dwarves, fat boys, albinos, gypsies, sword swallowers, bearded ladies, Siamese twins, contortionists, fortune tellers, and other treasure troves of odd human curiosities. But Barnum was not making fun of these people. He once said, I want folks to say, what an amazing person. He also recognized that he was probably the most extraordinary curiosity in the establishment. You have to imagine a time where there was no museum of natural history, there were no wax museums, there were no popular entertainments, there were no sideshows. Of course, some of Barnum's exhibits were classic humbugs. His six-foot-tall man-eating chicken was a six-foot man eating chicken. But his most popular curiosity was the Fiji mermaid. The greatest natural curiosity in the world. A ridiculous fraud combining the top half of a monkey and the bottom half of a fish. We're going over the heads of experts direct to the people. In fact, people were having such a great time that it posed a problem. How to move them through the museum more quickly so that new paying customers could get in. His solution was pure P.T. Barnum. He put up a sign near the back door, which read, This way to the egress. Egress. What do you suppose that is? Female egg, I should think. Come. Since most people didn't know that egress meant exit, they flocked through the door to see what even more bizarre creature awaited them, only to find themselves back out on the Broadway sidewalk. And instead of being mad at P.T. Barnum, they'd smile and say, oh, that's a knee slapper. He really got us again. And they would tell their friends, make sure you go up there and see the egress. Then, in November 1842, the 32-year-old showman discovered a distant relative of his named Charles Stratton. Will you shake hands with me, Charles? How do you do? How do you do? A five-year-old midget destined to become the biggest little legend in America. Stratton, who had stopped growing when he was seven months old, weighed only 15 pounds and barely came up to Barnum's knees. Remarkably articulate for his age, 
Stratton gave the appearance of being much older. Barnum christened him General Tom Thumb. Barnum immediately began exhibiting him, first at his Barnum American Museum, and then on the road. Are you ready to learn an act, boy? It would be a treat, sir. Excellent! <laughs> the utterly charming Tom Thumb never grew, but his reputation did. He danced, sang songs, and made jokes. And every move was meticulously choreographed by Barnum himself. In his first year on the road, Tom learned to drink wine with his meals. And at seven, he took up cigar smoking. They toured America throughout the 1840s and even got to meet President James Polk. Tom is probably one of the first national celebrities in the United States, actually, through the management uh, and promotion of P.T. Barnum. He was way ahead of his time in understanding what people wanted to see. And not just people in America. Their travels took them to Europe, culminating in an audience before England's Queen Victoria. The general says... Queen, ma'am, may I not shake hands with the Prince of Wales? We would be pleased. Hello, Prince. Hello, Tom. The Prince is taller than I am, but I feel bigger than anybody. <laughs> the man is the originator of the publicity stunt. They actually held a ladder against Queen Victoria so that he could climb up. Uh, and she, it is said, even though she was Queen Victoria, gave him a little peck on the cheek. It has been a pleasure for us to meet both of you. The honor is ours, Your Majesty. It was scandalous. It was scandalous in, in, in that day and age. And, and certainly he created an audience. This, this person, this Tom Thumb, came back from, from Europe a star. And the audience was created. That's what Barnum did best. That was the, the genius. Goodbye, Tom. The story of P.T. Barnum continues after these messages. This is Our American Stories. This day in history, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and get all of their great online courses. All 17 of them are there, free of charge. More on P.T. Barnum after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the life story of P.T. Barnum, the Shakespeare of advertising, the world's first super agent, frankly. Let's take a listen. When Barnum returned to the United States with Tom Thumb in 1848, he had become rich and famous. He celebrated his success by moving his family out of their apartment and into a palace. Inspired by the Royal Pavilion Fairy Tale Castle in Brighton, England, Barnum created a three-story Oriental-style structure in Bridgeport, Connecticut, with numerous porches and arches, the whole thing topped by multiple onion domes. Your new home! He called his home Iranistan. It was one of the most lavish and most expensive palaces America had ever seen. Unfortunately, four years later, 
A construction worker dropped the lit pipe and it burnt Iranistan to the ground. By the end of the 1840s, Tom Thumb was established enough and old enough to tour on his own. Barnum started looking for new talent. Some say he was also tired of being associated almost exclusively with the odd and freakish, that he yearned for a more respectable image. In 1849, he found it. Good day. I'm P.T. Barnum. Would you give my card to Miss Jenny Lind, please? You've done so yourself, Mr. Barnum. I am Jenny Lind. Please. Jenny Lind was a European opera star, known affectionately among her fans as the Swedish Nightingale. Barnum decided that he must be the man to bring her to America, at any price. And that's exactly how he got her. I'm a direct man, Mr. Barnum offered Lind nearly $200,000, plus a percentage of the box office, for a 150-show American tour. That was an unheard of sum of money at the time, especially to bring an opera singer to a country where the average person never heard of opera. Furthermore, Barnum had to borrow most of the money. A failure would leave him utterly bankrupt. So Lynn was flabbergasted to learn that Barnum had taken such a huge risk without ever having heard her sing. The auction is open. But Barnum knew that faith alone was not enough. He had to put his promotional prowess into high gear to make this gamble pay off. So he spent another small fortune creating a media frenzy. He hired a renowned journalist to invent weekly Jenny Lynn stories. The public ate them up. It was the beginning of what became known as Lindomania. Barnum also came up with the idea of dividing arena seats into different color sections to reflect different ticket prices. A first for its time. Still a common practice today. He auctioned off tickets for her New York City debut to the social elite. These men could well afford the outrageous cost in order to please their wives and also to be seen at what was rapidly becoming the event of the year, if not a lifetime. She was known by just about everybody. I mean, there were 30,000 people on the dock to greet her boat when it came to America. There were bands, there were people screaming, fog horns blaring as Jenny Lynn came off of this boat. As Lynn prepared her voice backstage, Barnum began to second guess his business decision. It's a rowdy crowd. After all, opening night in front of a rowdy New York City crowd could be a very dangerous thing. Look at her. She looks like a scrub woman gotten up for a ball. I can survive this disastrous tour with this ungainly woman who, for all I know, can't sing a note. Grettini! After the opening act got booed off stage, Jenny Lynn shared some final words for the doubting Barnum as she prepared to make her entrance. When we first met, you thought I was beautiful. I'm neither beautiful nor ugly. I'm just a plain woman with a gift from God, which I told you when we first met. So wait and see. When I sing, I will be beautiful. And that beauty is the beauty of God shining through me. So, since you've created the myth of Jenny Lind, I shall be that myth. 
The crowd loved her. Barnum had created Lindomania, and along with it, a new cultural phenomenon, celebrity. Recognizing the public's hunger for anything Jenny, businessmen began making products that the singer put her name on. The first ever celebrity-endorsed items. This is a lamp with uh, Jenny Lynn's image. Actually, it was originally a candle holder, but uh, Barnum was not the only one to take advantage of the Lindomania in America. There were a lot of things that were able to be bought by the masses. You know, Jenny Lind hats and Jenny Lind teapots and Jenny Lind china. You know, today we'd buy t-shirts. So all of the terrific marketing ploys that Barnum used with Jenny Lind have recycled, been reinvented, and it, what I find fascinating is what we find or think of as new today, he thought up more than a hundred years ago. His high-stake gamble had paid off. Even personal tragedy barely seemed to slow him down. Barnum's wife, Charity, took ill, eventually becoming incapable of taking care of herself. We'll never know how deeply this affected him because he protected his private life with the same zeal he promoted his public image. In 1851, Barnum tackled his most ambitious venture yet, which would take him from riches to rags. Barnum shared his ambitious plans at a press conference. We will build East Bridgeport. But Barnum's partner, Chauncey Jerome, a well-respected, successful businessman, skipped out, leaving Barnum a half a million dollars in the lurch. See? He's broken. Half a lifetime of accumulated wealth, power, and prestige were wiped out overnight. But an old friend arrived at Barnum's front door, offering to help. Tom. 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 Hello, Mr. Barnum. <laughs> Let me look at you. Tell me, to what do I owe this honor? I want to help you. Help me? Yes, sir. You see, I'm prospering. You rescued me when God knows what kind of a life I would have had. Now it's time for me to pay you back. I want you to manage me again. In 1859, with the help of Tom Thumb, Barnum bought back his American Museum and purchased a new and more modest home in Bridgeport, which he named Lindencroft. Today, what was once Lindencroft is a public space called Seaside Park, lorded over by a statue of P.T. Barnum. 1865 was a pivotal year for America and also for P.T. Barnum. A decade earlier in 1854, Barnum left his slave-supporting Democratic Party and became one of the first to join a new anti-slavery political group called the Republicans. Eleven years later, he was elected to the Connecticut legislature and cast his proudest vote for the abolition of slavery. Two years later, something else happened. The destiny which had been chasing Barnum all his life, the circus, had finally come to town. The biggest draw to Barnum's American Museum had always been its animal attractions. In the spring of 1867, he took his animals on the road, his first traveling circus. The circus returned to New York City in the fall so that the animals could spend the winter in Barnum's heated American Museum. The night of March 2nd, 1868, was bitterly cold and the museum's furnace was working overtime. Something 
perhaps a wandering spark in the boiler room, started a fire. Despite the valiant efforts of the fire brigade, Barnum's museum burned to the ground. The water from the pumps froze on the remains, leaving only an eerie ice palace. And when we come back, more on the life of P.T. Barnum. And my goodness, what a life, what an adventure, what a roller coaster it was. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories, the final installment of this hour-long celebration of the life of P.T. Barnum, who died on this day in history in 1891. As always, our This Days in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, a great place to learn all the fine things in life, philosophy, art, history, the Constitution, our founding fathers, Plato, Aristotle, and sports. And by the way, if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. Your family, your friends can take some of the best courses you'll ever take in your life. They're all free. They're all available online at hillsdale.edu. And now we return to the life story of Phineas Taylor Barnum. All the circus animals died in the blaze. Devastated, Barnum went into self-imposed retirement and wrote a best-selling autobiography. Then went on a speaking tour he called The Art of Money Getting. People must be free to dare, to risk, to strive if a nation is to be great. My wealth was made possible by my freedom. The first charge of all who would govern should be to guarantee that freedom or all is lost. And that is our American way. Needless to say, the public ate it up. While the intellectual elite shot him down. Until we meet again! In 1871, Barnum abruptly ended his retirement, prompted, as he put it, that rest is only found in action. The action Barnum took was to get back into the circus business with a vengeance. He put every lesson he had learned about salesmanship over 50-odd years into his new circus. Knowing you had to spend money to make money, Barnum spent liberally on advance advertising in cities where his circus was touring. He also wrote children's books based on the characters and attractions in the show. These he sold along with other memorabilia. This too, as in his promotion with Jenny Lind, was another early form of what is now called merchandising. From Star Wars action figures to Disney's frozen memorabilia, without the ingenuity of P.T. Barnum, Today's movie collectibles wouldn't look the same. Barnum didn't just break new American ground promoting his show. He pioneered its many technical and creative innovations. The traditional European circus, which was also the prevalent style in America at the time, was a one-ring show. Barnum ordered tents big enough for 10,000 people, which meant not everyone would be able to see what was going on in one ring. P.T. Barnum, being an American, (laughs) 
wanted something different. He wanted to make it bigger and better than, than the circuses were in Europe. We're going to make something bigger than the sum of its parts. The Three Ring Circus. And with this single brilliant stroke, the modern circus was born. This is the one place in the inter entertainment world where less is not more, more is more. One of Barnum's first revolutionary circus ideas became the genesis of the modern day movie trailer. He knew that if people were given a taste of excitement, they would want more. Barnum proposed to one of his business associates the idea that before the shows, they parade the circus through the visiting town so they would get a glimpse of the amazing things that would unfold under the big top. Spellbound, the people would follow the parade right into the circus grounds. But Barnum's business associate was not buying it. Americans are no different than any other people. Damn me, sir, but they are. Only the best and most curious people came to America. The sort who pay to find out for themselves. By giving it away? Precisely. And once they've tasted it, they'll pay for all they can get. Barnum even invented catchphrases, which not only helped promote his circus, they have since become common slang. For instance, Jumbo. Featuring Jumbo! Most people don't realize that we have Jumbo shrimp and Jumbo mortgages and Jumbo eggs today because of Jumbo the elephant. Then there's this famous phrase written by Barnum, first proclaimed by the circus ringmaster before the start of the show. Ladies and gentlemen, and children of all ages. The term rain or shine meant the show would go on under the big top no matter what the weather outside. Let's get the show on the road, was the cry heard when it was time to move the circus to a new location people had to hold their horses because Barnum's elephants were parading down the main streets of their town. Grandstanding referred to VIPs who would visit the circus grandstand to be seen by the public. And throwing one's hat into the ring began when a politician literally threw his hat into the circus ring from the grandstand to signify his decision to run for re-election. Barnum built America's first public aquarium in 1849. So when one of his whales died, Barnum initiated a term of compensation for his disappointed customers. Today's heavy rain appears to have affected the aquarium condition of our whales. But, but, the great American museum will give each and every one of you a check, which you may cash for admission on another day. Uh, Mr. Greenwood here will arrange for your rain checks. But the most memorable phrase concocted by P.T. Barnum was heard for the very first time in 1872 when he decided to call his circus the greatest show on earth. I love you still, my darling. In 1873, Barnum's wife of 44 years, Charity, died after her long illness. Will you marry me? Yes. <laughs> Within a year, he married his longtime friend, Nancy Fish. She was 24, he was 64. But even at 64, when most men of his day were long retired, running the biggest circus in the world didn't put a dent in Barnum's momentum. He gave business lectures at universities, 
started another newspaper and opened an entertainment arena called Madison Square Garden. In 1874, at a cost of $35,000. Tonight, I throw my hat in the ring! And in 1875, he became mayor of Bridgeport, Connecticut. After a one-year stint as mayor, Barnum turned his full attention back to the circus, where his name and fortune were now irrevocably joined. James Bailey owned the largest competing circus in America. He also owned an elephant named Jezebel, who birthed a baby elephant. Barnum sent a telegram to Bailey, offering to buy both elephants. Uh, gentlemen, I am prepared to offer $100,000 for the elephant called Jezebel and her newborn offspring. Awaiting your acceptance by return wire, P.T. Barnum, etc., etc. <clears throat> Bailey declined. Barnum was not happy. Damn it. That's not all, sir. Well, go on, go on. Uh, I have a report that uh, they've reproduced your telegram on a 12-sheet advertising board, sir, uh, with the words, what Barnum thinks of the baby elephant. <laughs> Whoever did that has Brassum. I like it. I like it. Who signed that telegram? James A. Bailey, sir. P.T. Barnum. Barnum finally met someone worthy of his steel and merged with his rival in 1880. This created the biggest and still the most famous circus in the world, the Barnum and Bailey Circus, the greatest show on earth. In 1885, Barnum retired from the circus, which passed to James Bailey. In the fall of 1890, Barnum suffered a stroke, which confined him to bed. His physical condition deteriorated quickly, but his spirits stayed high. Well, does it say Barnum is dead, finally gone? Yes. Yes, it does. Front page obituary. Oh, good trick. Faced with his impending death, he became curious about what people would say about him after he was gone. Barnum's wife read to him his own obituary. Two weeks later, on April 7, 1891, at the age of 80, the New York Sun was forced to run the real thing. With his family at his bedside, Barnum turned to his wife. Nancy. Ask Bailey what the box office was at the garden last night. And with that, Barnum passed from this world into eternity. After James Bailey's death in 1906, the Ringling Brothers merged the Barnum and Bailey Circus with their own. On May 2017, after 146 years, the greatest show on earth shut down for the last time. In closing, we would like to clear something up. Contrary to popular belief, P.T. Barnum never said there's a sucker born every minute. He always had more respect than that for what he called the audience. In fact, his philosophy was more along the lines of there's a customer born every minute. These customers were drawn to Barnum's storytelling talents, his understanding of human nature, and his burly good nature. So anytime you go to a circus, a fair, or for that matter a concert hall, a movie theater, or an amusement park, you'll find us, the audience, laughing, hollering, and usually getting our money's worth. 
And for that, you can thank P.T. Barnum. Great job as always, Greg. The life of Phineas Taylor Barnum. Wow. Merchandising, modern promotion, the entertainment business as we know it. My goodness, I didn't know the whole Madison Square Garden spot. I didn't understand or know any of that. Again, what a great life story. This day in history, P.T. Barnum died in 1891. As always, our This Days in History are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. This is Our American Stories. And to catch all our This Days in Histories, go to ouramericannetwork.org. We got almost 200 of them there now. with our American stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, all the things that matter in life. Over the next hour, we are going to tell you one heck of a story about a man whose vision and determination revolutionized the world. You all know his name. Now you're about to know his story. On this day in history, Henry Ford died in 1947. He is arguably the most influential man of the 20th century. He was praised by everyone from Presidents Woodrow Wilson and Herbert Hoover to the notorious gangsters, public enemy number one John Dillinger and Bonnie and Clyde. He's a man who changed how we all live. He gave us the Model T, the V8, and the traffic jam. Henry Ford, uh, I suppose, is a candidate for this elusive title of the most representative American ever because he did and symbolizes so many uh, things that I think are characteristic of this country's historical development. The Model T greatly expanded Americans' mobility knitting America very close together at the same time that it opened American sense of what was possible. So he liberated, at the individual level, the human spirit. Henry Ford was a revolutionary. He changed all of 20th century America. We're living in Henry Ford's world right now. More books have been written about auto pioneer Henry Ford than any other person in the car business. Though he has critics, he put the world on wheels with his famous Model T. I have a but less well-known is the fierce independent streak that led him to wage a lone and heroic battle for the right to run his own business. It was a struggle against the kind of people who think they should have the power to determine what is best for the rest of us. This is the story of Henry Ford. The year is 1903. 
America is becoming the most powerful nation on Earth, transformed from a post-Civil War wasteland into a budding superpower by a group of visionaries who battled the impossible to build unimaginable empires that have brought the country into the 20th century. Henry Ford is among this new generation of businessmen, and he is facing a new set of challenges as he struggles to get his company off the ground. I have set out to build the best motor car for popular use. The Ford motor car is durable and light, weighing only 1,000 pounds. It has a four-cylinder engine and is capable of speeds up to 45 miles an hour. It is priced at $900 compared to $1,500 for the average licensed car, which makes it the first car affordable for the common man. Young entrepreneur Henry Ford has created a new kind of car. But in order to sell it, he needs to get permission from the Association of Licensed Automobile Manufacturers, also known as Alum. Alum owns the patent on the automobile, giving them complete control over who can manufacture and sell cars. Alum chooses the winners and the losers for the future of the auto industry. They are, in a sense, a giant car monopoly, and Ford's future now rests in their hands. Thank you, Mr. Ford. We'll be in touch. Thank you, gentlemen. Ford is hopeful he'll be approved by Alum, allowing him to start his own business and to pursue his dream for the future of the car industry. When Ford entered the automobile business, people didn't drive their own cars. They had drivers. And so cars were seen as this luxury item. Ford's insight was that cars could be an everyday item. They could be very utilitarian. So that was, it was within the reach of ordinary people. Look, Henry. Ford has spent years developing his car for the common man. He builds his first gasoline-powered horseless carriage at the age of 33 and calls it the quadricycle. But the vehicle is expensive to produce and prone to breaking down. Ford's second attempt, the Model A, is much more suited to the needs of modern America. But he can't begin selling it without permission from Alum. Allen was successful in blackmailing other automobile companies, saying, you have to be licensed by us or we will sue you, and we own this patent. After months of deliberation, the Allen board reaches its decision. Henry Ford's application is rejected. He is one of the first applicants to be refused a license. At 40, he is broke and appears to be all washed up. Alum sees Ford as a loser, and the rejection is their way of telling him that he had no right to be in the business. It's a crushing blow. The auto cartel has stopped him in his tracks. He just needs to find a way around what appears to be an impassable fortification. It's a daunting task, but Henry Ford has been preparing for this moment his entire life. And when we come back, how Henry Ford did it, and my goodness, at 40, broke, and most people would have just quit, 
you know, when you're fighting against forces that big. And by the way, this still goes on today, uh, how the government often colludes with private business to block competition and how comp- and how big business tries to block small business. And Henry Ford was not going to be denied. When we come back, more of this remarkable American story, the good and some of the bad after these messages. Our American stories. And on this day in history, Henry Ford died in 1947. And we left off with Henry Ford facing seemingly insurmountable obstacles. In his early 40s, broke, beaten down by a cartel. What the heck was next? Let's take a listen. It's July 30th, 1863. The Civil War is still raging, and it's 30 years before the first automobile appears in the U.S. Farmers William and Mary Ford have their first surviving child in Dearborn, Michigan. They name him Henry. Henry's parents expect all their five children to work alongside them on the land. But Henry finds the work tedious, and when he begins obsessing over machines that might make farm life easier, his parents indulge their naturally curious child. They allow him to neglect his chores and set up a workbench for him in the kitchen. Henry Ford was a natural-born mechanic. He had innate ability. One of the first places that he was able to begin to hone that ability was when he received a watch for his birthday. Like a lot of little boys who wanted to know about machines, he took that watch apart. Unlike most little boys, he was able to put the watch back together again. When his siblings received wind-up toys for Christmas, they had to hide them from Henry, or he would take them apart to see their inner workings, writes Phil Anschutz. Then, in 1876, Henry's 12-year-old world falls apart. She did. A few months later, while traveling down the road with his father, Henry gets his first close-up view of a steam-powered road roller. Oh, what's that? Looks like a stove on wheels. He ain't got no horses. Also known as a steamroller, a bulky vehicle that chugged along country roads and performed farm chores for hire. Henry, you come back here. Listen to your father, Henry. You little devil, yeah. I've never seen a wagon. 
steam power, boy. I seen a steam engine at Harvest running a corn husker, but I never saw one pull a wagon. How's it work? Where'd you come from? Detroit! How long it take? How fast can it go? Who built it? Did you build it, mister? How did you do it? For Henry Ford, this was like the road to Damascus, a glimpse of the full potential of the Industrial Revolution and free market capitalism. Not merely brute factory power, but mobility, the capacity of a machine to venture deep into the countryside, off the beaten track, far from the railroad, and enhance the lives of farmers who had previously felt cut off from things. Formal education didn't much interest young Henry. He quit school after the fifth grade. Like his future friend Thomas Edison, he finds satisfaction by working with his hands on a complicated task. At some point after seeing the road roller, Ford begins dreaming of building his own mobile contraption. On a cold day in December 1879, Henry walks the nine miles from his family farm to the city of Detroit. There, he would reinvent himself. Then on a spring day almost 10 years later in 1888, wearing a wedding dress she had made herself, Clara Jane Bryant, who had grown up on a nearby farm, married Henry Ford. Three years later, Henry Ford took a job in Detroit at the Edison Illuminating Company working his way up to chief engineer by the age of 31. With his canny source of rugged engineering, he would stay in the shop long after hours, tinkering with machinery and doing his own experiments. As the years passed, however, he begins to spend less time worrying about providing electricity to the citizens of Detroit and more on what has become his after-hours obsession. Transportation in America was terrible once you got away from the railroads. Terrible. It was an enormous burden. I mean, if you're living on the farm, getting around on land is one of the biggest problems people have. And a Merry Christmas to you, Henry. In 1893, Ford sets out to build the gasoline-powered vehicle that had been taking shape in his mind. Henry Ford had an enormous capacity for concentration. He became something of a mad professor when he was actually working on a project. And so when he was building his first internal combustion engine, his own version of it, he got so wrapped up that he brought it home on Christmas Eve when his poor wife was cooking the turkey and getting the meal ready and everything. Well, everything's already the plan. Well, will you see what I got here? This is something that'll pop your eyes out. This is a beauty. I'm sure it's wonderful, Henry. But your supper's getting cold, Just huh? close, close your eyes. It's a surprise. Close your eyes. Don't peek. Ready? Ready? Voila! What is it? It's an engine. Gasoline, internal, combustion, engine. Oh. And right in the wonderful. middle of all this, he stuck the machine on the kitchen sink, uh, screwed it to the sink, got his wife, whose, whose hands were all covered with gravy and stuff, to actually drip gasoline into the top of it. Now, here's the gas. Here, that's gas. Now, I want you to drip it in that lower funnel there, okay? Drip it in nice and steady now, okay? Drip it in nice and steady. Keep going steady. Here we
connected the wires and started the machine and was quite oblivious to the fact that he was filling the kitchen with clouds of exhaust smoke. Henry Ford is determined to show the world that to succeed in America, all you need is integrity and ingenuity. He was once asked, what is your greatest ambition? Ford shot back to be free, a free man. Ford knew that he could not be free so long as Alum clouded the destiny he had marked out for himself. Ford is left with few options, but he isn't about to give up on his dreams. Ford thought that uh, the whole thing was ridiculous, uh, that there could not be a patent on the idea of the automobile, that the automobile was not the property of one single individual. And that's where we leave things off in this segment. When we come back, we're going to learn what Henry Ford does next. First segment, we got that major obstacle in his life. Second segment, which you just heard, we go back in time. By the way, and Out Where the West Was Won, and by the way, we love this book. And again, Out Where the West Was Won is by Phil Anschutz and chronicles so many of the pioneers, the business pioneers that made this country happen. When we study history, we rarely think of the businessmen. We must. We put them in the center. Also, the myth of the robber barons, which is a must-read. And uh, Professor Bert Folsom at Hillsdale College wrote it. And we've done some of those. You can go to ouramericannetwork.org. And my goodness, take a listen to a few of them, and you'll love them. And the idea that these men were robber barons is just a misnomer. And we like to take back history from those who've tried to distort it and give it to you straight, as straight as can be. No politics. Uh, just tell the story of these men. And again, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we'll get into some of the parts of, of Henry Ford's life that were not so pretty. Uh, but for the most part, on balance, one of the greats of the 20th century. And my goodness, his contribution to our economy, to the middle class. And I just wanted to read one thing really quickly. It's how the chapter starts off. Uh, Henry Ford, and again, Out Where the West Was Won by Phil Anschutz. My ambition, said Henry Ford, is to employ still more men to spread the benefits of this industrial system to the greatest possible number to help them build up their lives and their homes. And so said Henry Ford, who did more than anyone in America to move the majority of the citizens of this country into the automobile-owning middle class. When we come back, what Henry Ford does next will astound you. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. 
our This Day in History segment. On this day in history, Henry Ford died in 1947. And as always, our This Days in History brought to you and us by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and as always, all the things that matter in life. We now pick up with the story of Henry Ford and his ongoing battle with Alum. Ford is determined to get around Alum's stranglehold on the auto industry. But he's just one man going up against a virtual monopoly. If he's going to be a success without Alum, he's going to need to make a name for himself. It's a very simple thing on the make or break decisions, the gut. And that's what separates the great leaders and the great successes. And if you can't listen to it, you don't have it, you're never going to get it. Of course, it's never going to come from someplace else. Henry Ford challenges the owner of the biggest car company in the country to a race. It's just us, Mr. Ford. It's no interest in watching me circle the track with you following me those extra miles. <laughs> Wenton, I don't even aim on seeing you at the finish. Gentlemen, start your engines. Alexander Winton is known as the fastest driver in America and is also a prominent member of Allen. Beating Winton with a car of his own design has the potential to give Ford the boost he needs to start his own company. There's just one problem. Henry Ford has never raced a car before. It's a David and Goliath scene. Winton's famous world record holder has this fancy race car. Ford, the local boy, made good. For the first third of the 10-mile race, Ford lags behind Winton struggling to control his car on the curves because he doesn't have any brakes. Then, on the sixth lap, he starts to close the gap. As Winton's engine begins to overheat and smoke, the crowd erupts as Ford zooms past his rival, winning the race by nearly a mile. Henry Ford's upset win over the fastest man in America makes him instantly famous. Ford's a hero, and this is really the first big time, I think, that he becomes a celebrity. Uh, the Ford name gets out there, and he milks it for everything that it's worth. And it was a very crucial part of Ford getting investors for the Ford Motor Company. But Ford's success is met with almost instant defeat. Henry. You're fired. Well, pretty hard to fire a fellow who's got his name on the automobile, don't you think? No, oh, I've taken care of that, Henry. We're naming the company after the French explorer who founded Detroit. We're naming it Cadillac. William Murphy, like the key that. financial backer, fires Ford and starts another car company. Gather your things, Henry. You're finished. Ford leaves with his name, $900 and a dream. Take away my car, give me $900, take my name off the door. Dream of making a motor car where the farmer could go into the city and the city fella could go out into the country and see the grandness of it all. Understand it. Meet each other, understand each other. Ford raises $28,000. 
or $700,000 today. On June 16, 1903, Ford has enough money to incorporate the Ford Motor Company, and before long he's producing 15 cars a day, priced low enough for almost any American. But Ford's investors propose an alternative way to increase profits. While we all appreciate the great good fortune we've enjoyed this first year, let me say that these profits are only the beginning. I propose that we raise the price of an automobile dramatically and go off to the top part of the market. From the beginning, there seemed to have been two strands in American car making. There were the people who were making horseless carriages for the rich, loading them down, making them heavy and luxurious. And then there was Henry Ford, who had this idea that a car should be able to go along the rutted tracks, it should be able to drive across a ploughed field, a farmer should be able to use it and take a wheel off it and fix a chain to it and, and cut some trees down or husk some corn. That was all he was interested in from the start. I'm interested in building more cars for more people for less money. I'm not interested in the big man or the rich man. I'm interested in a little fella who's never been able to afford anything special. I want to give him an automobile that's going to open up his world, open up his eyes, and nobody's greed, nobody's greed, is going to take that away from him. Henry Ford's early success puts him on the map. Alum takes notice and hits him with a lawsuit, claiming he's breaching their patent on the automobile. You see all these huge conglomerations suing people over patents. The big guys are taking advantage of the little guys, trying to find whatever angle they could and using their might, and those with the best tricksters win. In Detroit, Michigan, a panel of federal judges will decide whether Ford can continue to freely manufacture and sell his car. The Association of Licensed Automobile Manufacturers is suing Ford for a royalty on every car he sells. Ford knows those royalties would drive up the cost of his car, putting it out of the reach for the average consumer. For most early car makers, the lawsuit would be a devastating setback. But for Ford, it's something different, an opportunity. People react to failure in one of two ways. Either they get scared and give up, or they take that failure that, as a learning experience, and they kind of use that experience to redouble their efforts. Here comes Mr. Ford. Good morning, sir. How are you? Ford is convinced the era of unchecked monopolies is over. So as his lawsuit winds its way through court, he openly defies the order from Alum and continues building and selling his cars. He believes there's a better way to conduct business in America, and he's determined to make it a reality. What about a union? Let them form a union? After they hear the news I'm going to give you, they're not going to want to hear the word union. As of tomorrow, every Ford worker is going to get $5 a day. Did you say $5 a day? You heard it here. Furthermore, there'll be no more 10-hour days. As of tomorrow, Eight hours a day, nobody has to work eight hours a day. And there you have it. And we have one more really remarkable segment to close out this story. But already we're learning about 
the nature and character of some of these men. And again, we did Rockefeller and we did Vanderbilt, two of those so-called robber barons, and now we're bringing you Henry Ford's life. And again, always brought to you by Hillsdale College and how he dealt with failure. And I got to tell you, you're listening to this story and you're thinking, how did this guy just keep going? How did he do it? And this is the thing. And this is the rub. And again, we hear this over and over again in all of these stories. And ultimately, uh, when people do learn about Henry Ford, they learn about his anti-Semitism. And so much American history now is taught through the lens of what is wrong and what was wrong from the making of the Constitution and slavery. Uh, tragedy and terrible. The sin of omission in this great country. But put it in the context of the world, and slavery was everywhere. And so when studying history, we've got to always give the context, and we need to know what made these men great. It's easy to look at their failures and their failings, because these are men, and we all have them. And anti-Semitism was a cancer. It was a virus. And Ford's reputation suffered rightly and correctly for it. But when we come back, what Ford did for this country, how he changed this country, how he changed the world, and liberated liberated people to do what they wanted with their lives and live and go where they wanted with those lives. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. stories you're listening to bob seeger's roll me away we've all known that feeling how many songs have been written about the feelings of freedom in a car turning in a direction changing your life taking a girl somewhere whatever it's the most central part of american life and henry ford he practically invented it for us he put a car within reach of all of us henry ford died on this day in history in 1947 Ford's unprecedented and groundbreaking $5 a day raise is more than double the rate of most U.S. factories. But Ford isn't just paying his workers better. He's also getting more out of them. He innovates a new system for producing cars. Rather than handcrafting each car one at a time at stationary workbenches, his are assembled by a line of workers, piece by piece. It's called the moving assembly line and it completely changes manufacturing forever. But first, Ford must introduce this system to his employees. All right, where's my running board, man? Bring in the running board. Put it right over the holes. That's it. Don't bother anything else. You go back to the next car. Now my bolt man. Where's my bolt man? Put it right in the bolt holes. Don't bother to tighten them. 
Don't bother. Where's the man that's going to tighten them? You come in there now. Next, you go back to the next car, bolt man. Cousin, how do you like that, huh? Ford didn't invent mass production, but he perfected mass production. He understood that a complicated product like an automobile could be simplified and could be made less expensive if the same thing was produced again and again and again. Using the assembly line, Ford's workers can build cars up to eight times faster than any other automobile factory in the world. What once took 12 and a half man hours to assemble now takes 93 minutes. The innovation allows Ford to standardize the eight-hour workday, five days per week. Meanwhile, Ford awaits the future of his company. It's potentially a life-changing moment, not just for Ford, but for the future of every industry in the country. In a surprise decision, the court rules in favor of Henry Ford. Alum has no legal claim to the design of the car. Henry Ford is free to innovate without repercussion. Well guys, that was it. Let's go sell some cars, huh? <laughs> Ford's dream is made a reality. The car belongs to everyone. Ford's success put him forward in American life as a new kind of businessman. The American population ate this up and they made Henry Ford a kind of folk hero. Ford seizes the momentum and his factories go into overdrive. Every few months, Ford introduces a new model, making his way through the alphabet. But the Model K was too heavy and expensive. The Model N, though lighter and cheaper, had an engine cast in four pieces rather than one block. Ford kept at it. What are we gonna call this here new model? Well, nothing fancy, just keep it simple. Use another letter out of the alphabet. Where are we now? That's T as I counted. Well, call it Model T. Well, she is, sir. Ford finally nailed it. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the moment you've been waiting for, Mr. Ford's Model T! It was the same kind of excitement that the Man on the Moon mission people had. There are a handful of those kinds of moments in American history where there's a dream that is so big in its potential, and you think you got it, and then you get it. First of all, I'd like to thank all of you for coming out here. Ford's assembly line starts producing this revolutionary new car at a record rate. The Model T costs only $825. It's a four-cylinder, 20-horsepower, five-passenger family car. Powerful, speedy, and enduring. A car that looks good and is as good as it looks. And I got one word for you gentlemen of the press, and that word is volume. What's that, Henry? Volume. What do you mean? We're going to make so many of these Model T's that you're going to run out of numbers to count. <laughs> the response was immediate and overwhelming. Orders pour in from doctors and farmers. Americans who have never dreamed of becoming motorists can now afford Henry Ford's Model T. The Model T changed everything. It gave people a new sense of power and authority and control over their lives. You can go wherever you want it and you can go by yourself. You can get in your car 
and you have access now to towns, to cities, to places that were beyond your reach just a few years earlier. They were also remarkably durable. They didn't break down a lot compared to other vehicles, and when they did, they were very simple to repair. This wasn't somebody just genning out a product. This was a quality to the economical car that the world had never even imagined could be possible. Part of the enduring myth of the Model T is that all of them were black. But when the Model T first came on the market, customers could get almost any color except black. Blue, gray, green, and red were all available. It was not until five years later that the any color so long as it is black policy was finally implemented. Then in 1913, Ford enacted another amazing advancement with the implementation of standardized interchangeable parts. Unlike other cars of the time, every Model T produced on that line used the exact same valves, gas tanks, tires, etc so that they could be assembled in a speedy and organized fashion. 1,000 cars a day rolled out of the factory in 1914, 2,000 in 1916. As productivity went up, the price went down. Soon, 60% of all cars made in the U.S. were Model Ts. Cutting prices enabled Ford to achieve what were his two aims in life to bring the pleasures of the automobile to as many people as possible and to provide a large number of high-paying jobs for his workers. Henry Ford created what became the most important industry in the American economy. He had no idea of the enormous impact it would have on almost every sector of American life. He literally changed America, the way we live, the way we do things, and the way we go about our business. Ford's reputation won't always be so positive, but his revolution inspires an entire generation of visionaries who will transform the fabric of American life. Childhood friends William Harley and Arthur Davidson attach an engine to a bicycle and begin selling motorcycles to the masses. Milton Hershey applies Henry Ford's assembly line model to the mass production of chocolate. Chicago merchant William Wrigley takes his chewing gum national. And in Hollywood, Polish immigrant Max Factor begins distributing cosmetics for movie stars to drugstores across the country, inventing a completely new consumer product, makeup. In the spring of 1947, Henry Ford returned home from vacation. On his second day back, the powerhouse that supplied his home with heat and light flooded. That evening, Henry and his wife turned in early. Power still hadn't returned, and their room was lit only by an oil lamp and a few candles. Before the night was out, Henry Ford the father of mass production, the inventor of the modern age, the man who embodied the American dream, laid his head on his wife's shoulder 
and left the world just as he came into it 84 years earlier. By candlelight. In Detroit, motorists were asked to come to a complete stop at the time the automaker's body was being lowered into the ground. For that second, when the automobiles came to a stop, Detroit returned to the way Henry Ford had found it. And great job on that, Greg. And Greg Hengler always does such great work on these pieces. And I want to close with Phil Anschutz. He wrote this in How the West Was Won. Because of Ford, many middle-class folks could become motorists. Automobiles were no longer just toys of the rich. This was particularly important to the American West, a land of vast distances and rugged obstacles. Westerners bought and used more cars, cars than Easterners or Southerners. Visitation at national parks and other Western wonders soared once families could drive themselves cheaply and reliably in their Model T and A Fords. And many who toured the West, well, later they moved there in their Fords. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories.